0: Postscript Media, podcast for a
1: changing planet. She does not take
2: no for an answer. I don't. They're like, oh, God, she's never going to leave us alone. <laughs> <laughs> so do you take cookies or donuts? Uh, oh, no, that would be a lovely idea. Next time. <laughs> Next time, it's, I'm going to advance the agenda of hot buttons and bring yes. donuts.
3: This is Hot Buttons, a show about the future of fashion and culture on a changing planet. I'm Christina Binkley. I'm a contributing writer at Vogue Business and The Wall Street Journal. We are devoting the next three episodes in September to secondhand. We're going to have guests on each episode to talk about it, about different aspects of the resale market. Today, we're having Andy Rubin from Trove on to talk about how his company is powering resale for brands and their latest partnership with On Shoes to build a resale site and recommerce platform. He'll be on shortly. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check.
2: must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now.
3: Rachel Kibbe of Circular Services Group is in New York. Rachel, how's it going? It's going great. Thanks, Christina. And the CEO of Thrilling, Sheila Kim Parker, is coming to us as always from South Salem, New York. Hey, Sheila. Hi there. Rachel, you went to DC. Something happened. Tell us.
2: First of all, going to DC, uh, I I reignited my love of workwear again. (laughs) (laughs) What's What's
3: that? By which you don't mean sweatpants and ratty t shirts? Yes. No? <laughs> okay.
2: Probably in their homes, but on the street, we, we've got a lot of shift dresses and like statement mm. necklaces and uh, really nice suits. And it was uh, refreshing. It was refreshing. I love it. it made me want to get dressed up again. And You're like I also. Joan found-
0: Rivers on the streets of DC.
2: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
3: Exactly. This may be the first moment that somebody in fashion was inspired by the streets of Washington (laughs) DC. And
2: also I told a friend, you know, I just actually I love DC. It's so walkable, it's so relaxing. And she also said she was like Spoken like a true New Yorker. Right. (laughs) True. You said D.C. is relaxing. I was like, absolutely. Yes, exactly. (laughs) Yeah. So besides sort of really enjoying the city, I had the opportunity to meet with some staffers on the Hill to advance the agenda of circularity policy in the U.S. Um, Education to Mm. policymakers is so important. Staffers have so much on their plates. You know, they're almost like talking to a VC. So um, my goal in, in establishing these relationships primarily isn't to have them have have, you know, a comprehensive understanding of our industry, but if they want one, they can listen to Hot Buttons. <laughs> but um, <laughs> I hope you pitched that. Um, I didn't, but next, okay. next trip, yeah. next that's trip. That's Hopefully this, <laughs> I wasn't, hot Buttons, Christina, slow your
0: roll. <laughs> that's awesome, Rachel. Yeah. So
2: I'm just sharing about, you know, sharing with them top line impacts that textile waste has on their communities. And the positive environmental impacts and job opportunities and cost savings that the circular economy um, provides us domestically. So that's that's my goal right now.
3: Were you doing this on your own or did you have um, did you have people with you? You were
2: I went on my own, but I I have uh, friends and colleagues there um, and we took some meetings together.
0: Now, can you just show do you make appointments in advance or can you literally go door to door knocking on doors? You can basically go door to door knocking on doors. I literally reached out over websites. So,
3: this has been burning in the back of my brain. I know you guys too. We talk about our bummers and our beacons, and I think we all had an immediate feeling of what the Boohoo brouhaha is going to be for us. A major bummer, right? Who wants to tell us what's going on with Boohoo right now?
0: Basically, Boohoo, which is a fast fashion company based in the UK. Um, They announced, I think a week or two ago, a partnership with Kourtney Kardashian where she's going to be ambassador for the brand um, and she's also producing or overseeing two limited edition collections. One launches, I think tomorrow, September 13th at New York Fashion Week. And it's described as 46 limited edition pieces. I Mm -hmm. can't tell if they mean styles or pieces. Me neither. But there's been a lot of uproar over this collab because it's framed as sustainable. Um, They use a lot of wishy-washy language. They say this collection will feature materials from recycled fibers. (laughs) You know, all the vague language that we've talked about um, previously on the show, they use a lot of that. Right. And, of course, coming from one of the biggest producers of fast fashion... That hypocrisy yeah. kind of rubs people the wrong way. Yeah. And yeah. everybody
2: sees
3: it. You have to
2: everybody wonder. Everybody
0: how they did that with a straight face.
2: Mm. I mean, and they are. They continue to. So listen, there's so much to unpack here. There's so much to unpack. More than even I knew. Like initially, I I read a few articles and then it kind of goes deep. So they also have this docu-series on YouTube about Kourtney Kardashian's sustainability journey. And I did watch the first
0: episode. Note for our listeners that Christina choked. Yes,
2: I did. (laughs) Christina did just just choke. Christina (laughs) (laughs) Christina did just choke. (laughs) Sorry. But, But here hear me out hear me out so it turns out that a lot of people i know and respect are featured on this docuseries oh, um no. yeah and so it's a um, boohoo produced series. yes with oh. courtney taking her on her journey Do you still respect these people well, they're, giving, they're, they're educating her. That's the, that's the side of the, oh. the, the partnership I actually understand. So, okay. so I feel that we do need influencers with large platforms raising these issues. I respect some of the people they've worked with on the education component, sitting down with her and talking about these things. But the fact remains that the launch is of a collection and a brand – that is not sustainable. Mm. I mean, as Sheila said, there's vague references to traceable cotton, there's recycled sequins, there's recycled polyester, there's faux leather. If you listen to our podcast, you know that these are things that we talk about as being problematic. Not to
3: mention that she was just cited by L.A. County for insane levels of overwatering her property, <laughs> they're good bedfellows because
2: Boohoo recently came under fire for misleading claims in the UK by the Competition and Markets Authority for greenwashing mm-hmm. like a month ago.
0: Yeah, I think one of the other reasons why people are frustrated by this announcement is is because the scale seems inadequate. So whether it's styles or pieces, Vice did, a, did an investigation into Boohoo and, and found that they produce 100 new styles every single day. So 40,000 mm-hmm. new styles every single year for an average price point of $17. There have been investigative reports that show that they are underpaying their workers in some factories for as little Mm -hmm. as three pounds an hour. And interestingly, the family that owns Boohoo, their son founded Pretty Little Things. So this is like a fast fashion empire.
3: (laughs) Yeah, which has Uh, a whole nother level of greenwashing over there too. We'll have to talk about that another day. But there is some news. There's great news. There is... A beacon of hope. I would call it mm-hmm. that. New York Magazine reported recently that Rachel Comey found a way to quit Uline, which might not sound like a major headline. I don't know about you guys, but I get the Uline catalog in my home and they sell a lot of cardboard. They sell virtually anything you need. for You your get background. the Uline catalog in your home? Yeah, I do. And <laughs> I I love used that. to love it. I used to love to get it. If you look at a lot of times when you order fashion, you'll get a cardboard box. It'll say Uline on there somehow. The fashion brand bought it from Uline. But then it turns out it's a privately owned company and the family has become major donors to right-wing MAGA politics, right? I think Mm -hmm, that's sort of mm -hmm. the essence of the concern.
2: Dick and Liz Uline, according to this New York Magazine story that came out uh, last week, have donated billions of dollars to extreme right super PACs, anti-abortion groups, conservative candidates, uh, pro-assault weapon groups, anti-trans rights groups. So
3: problematic for for me. (laughs) I'll speak for myself. And problematic for Rachel Comey, right? And for a lot of people that haven't been able to figure out how, if you don't want to support that, how do you get your cardboard boxes? Packaging, let me
2: tell you, is expensive. It's part of, that cost that the customer just doesn't even realize, which is shipping and packaging. And packaging is expensive and sustainable packaging even more so. And and, and an added component to that is that a lot of sustainable packaging just really is sort of flimsy, especially cardboard boxes, um, unless you want to pay out the nose. And so finding something that actually preserves your margin so you're not losing money on shipping something out is challenging. But
0: it seems like Rachel has done that. Artnet wrote a piece recently about artists trying to find alternatives in the space that it's difficult to find options when you're too big to shop at staples but too small to open accounts at major commercial wholesalers so they really do have a monopoly here yep so
3: so that was all the background to saying that rachel comey was bothered by this and put in the time um it it sounds like it wasn't easy but she found she found several alternatives right that Mm -hmm. uh, were within relatively the same price levels and she chose one of them and has switched over which tells All businesses, small and large, that um, if you want to get away, she's the one that she was uses is called the Boxery. But I, th- but this article mentions several others too. So there yeah. are alternatives out there. Yeah, bravo to Rachel Comey for breaking free. Okay, we all know it's New York Fashion Week, but did you guys know it's also Secondhand September?
0: Well, we did. Right.
2: <laughs> Spoiler alert! But we just learned about it.
0: Right. <laughs> Yeah, the Oxfam started 2019. They're a nonprofit based in the UK. And their call to action this month is that nobody buy anything new in the month of September. Obviously, we should do it for the full year, but we'll start with September. Um, mm-hmm. I first heard about it in 2020 because Michaela Cole was picked to be their ambassador for secondhand September. And I was in a deep Michaela Cole obsession. I May Destroy You binge, which is like one of the best TV shows in history. Um, but other than that, I don't think that it would have come across my radar. And I feel like it's still huh. relatively unknown in the u s.
3: It's kind of neat. Once you start looking into resale, you you can see just how far this market has come in recent years. We are here, even if we're not hearing about secondhand September. I feel like every time we turn around, we're hearing about resale and circularity in some way. It's easy to think about thrift shops and vintage stores, eBay, ThreadUp. There's actually a lot more. But before we get too far into our series on Secondhand September, we should step back for a second and try to define this space. Um, Who wants to go first here? I'll try to give it a shot. It's a complicated
2: space. So we tried to break it down into three categories. um, And we're going to tackle all over the coming month using news stories of of what we mean by um, what I'm about to explain. So three categories, big marketplaces, infrastructure plays, and resale tech innovators. So the big marketplaces – Big resale market players include the Real Real, ThredUp, Fashion File, eBay, Rent the Runway, Depop, Poshmark, Grail, Vestair. You've heard of them; they're household names. Um, they offer consumers access to marketplaces with a wide variety of brands and styles. It's like a department store when you go on their site yeah. of multiple brands from luxury and vintage to fast fashion. It depends on the marketplace you're shopping on. What they all share is that they have started off as their own marketplaces. Some are consignment based, like the Real Real. Others are peer-to-peer like eBay and Depop, which means consumers are selling out of their own closets. But now some of these players are also powering resale for others. For instance, ThreadUp's recent uh, partnership with Tommy Hilfiger. Then we have infrastructure plays, which are less household names because they're back-end. These are companies who are um, only primarily powering the back-end of brand-owned resales. This includes Trove and Andy, who is the founder of Trove. We have on the episode today, Tursus, Archive, Arrive, Debrand, Optoro. Then we have the resale tech innovator space. These are the companies that are helping brands do like a hands-off peer-to-peer resale uh, model. So they're essentially turning brands' websites into the model that Depop and Poshmark use. They're enabling the customers from these sites to sell to each other on-brand websites, and they include Treat, Recurate, Reflaunt. If that sort of made your head spin, don't worry. It's made my head spin many (laughs) times, and especially because now a lot of these uh, companies are not only partnering and helping each other and working together in interesting ways, but they're also getting into each other's space. So we're going to go over how all these categories are growing and changing in the market and um, why brands may choose one over the
3: other and, and look at this from a news perspective. But first, let's talk about some of the most recent headlines in resale. Michael Kors, Marimekko, Pretty Little Things just launched resale platforms in the past couple of weeks. I suspect that has something to do with second half September. But they didn't get all the same reception from the sustainable fashion community, did they?
0: No, not at all. I mean, <laughs> we can talk with Pretty Little Things. I thought this was really interesting. So Pretty Little Things, fast fashion company launched their a new marketplace app um also tie into one of our earlier episodes india one of the love island contestants mm-hmm. <laughs> um,
2: i noticed that Shella. i thought of you <laughs>
0: <laughs> um one of the best love island contestants anyway but she became the ambassador for this new marketplace app where they're going to enable um folks to sell items um to each other but Interestingly, it's not just pretty little things, items. Like, it'll be a marketplace like eBay is a marketplace. You can sell uh-huh. any item you like. Um, right. So I, I I think that's an interesting and slightly different play than what most of these folks are going after. Like, they're pretty much... I think it's smart. It is smart, but I also think that it's going to be challenging because they're basically launching a standalone business that is going to go head-to-head with eBay, Depop, mm. ThreadUp, yep. etc., Mm-hmm. Um, massive competitors who've spent billions of dollars getting smart in the space and have years ahead of them. So I think it's really interesting to watch to see what happens. Um, but I do think it'll be a tough road ahead for it. Shilla,
2: let me ask you this. When I when I see something like that, especially with when fast fashion is launching a resale platform and allowing um, customers to sell other brands on their platforms, I always see them talking about the vintage and uh, luxury components, because yeah. obviously those are probably... Uh, going to maybe even sell faster and have better sell-through rates than their own products. What what do you what's your perspective on on that? Do you think that they're actually going to have a lot of vintage and and luxury or is it mostly going to be their fast
0: fashion brand and other fast fashion brands? Um I I don't know if we've seen a fast fashion company launch a marketplace in this way unless I'm mistaken. So I think it'll be interesting to see what happens with this one. In general, as an idea, I'm really supportive of brands supporting re-commerce of, of other brands in addition to their own.
3: Who would sell their product their product jacket right. on an H&M or pretty little things website? I don't
0: Yeah, I just don't I think luxury is a different question. Yeah, it's luxury is tough because you're going to always have first of all authentication issues and and for and right. to your point, oh, yeah. somebody who's selling um, an Hermes bag for $200 on, on a site like that, you're going to be very suspicious about yeah, what. Right.
3: <laughs> and, you know... <laughs> oh, that's the, right. I'll sell the, my fake Hermes and my right. Prada on that site. Not the real and
0: ones. you have global <laughs> retailers who have spent a massive amount of money standing up authentication operations and still having trouble combating the fraud. So I think luxury mm-hmm. is always going to be tough. Mm-hmm. Um, but again, in general, I think, I think brands supporting the sale of of items that are not just their own brands. I think that's awesome. Um, yeah. Because, mm-hmm. I mean, It Rachel, opens up the space. Absolutely. And and yeah. helps make this idea of buying secondhand mainstream to consumers.
3: Mirameco. I thought that was an interesting one. Like I, that. Um, oh, my gosh. Such oh. nostalgia. Did yes. you have
2: Mirameco sheets growing up? And shower curtain.
3: That's amazing. Oh, my gosh. Yes.
2: So, so Meko is a 70, 71 year old Finnish company. And if you think you haven't heard of them, you've seen them if you grew up at all in the 80s. Yeah. Because they are just, they had prints that were just to die for. They still do. But they, especially in the 70s and 80s, they made a lot of children's prints for bedware and linens that were just like staples and also knocked off, I think. There's there's so many knockoffs
3: these days of Mary Mecco textile print.
2: Now
0: I feel neglected as a child. <laughs>
3: <laughs> their their style was so clear Sellier. that you could al- it, it's very hard to knock it off because it's so pure.
0: Sheila, you've got to Google. No, it. no, it's, that it's not the, uh, as an adult, I'm just saying as a kid I was not swathed in Mary Mecco. Oh.
2: <laughs> I mean me neither. I think we might have had one pair of sheets and we would got rid of them last year. <laughs> Well, the, I don't think they made clothes back then, though,
3: did they? They, yeah,
2: they did. They started as a textile printing company, and they, they st- in 1949 and started selling apparel in 51. And then by 1960, okay. Jacqueline uh, Kennedy Onassis was wearing Marimekko dresses, and that's really how they got into the oh, global spotlight. The-
3: Marimekko resale. What could? I mean, yeah. that makes total sense to me.
2: Yeah, if if they're the high. That, it's like, one of the highest value resale items in Finland, I guess. Mm-hmm. So if you if you have a Marimekko item, you want to resell it in Finland because you'll get a lot for it. So
0: yeah, it's right now it's only active in Finland um, and powered by this company Archive, and it's and it's, it's again this really interesting concept. You know, it's peer to peer, but within a branded space. So you think you're in the Marimekko. Site and app experience, but you're able to sell items that you bought previously from them and resell it to other consumers, um, and you would do like the shipping and everything. and And we saw Michael Kors had a similar announcement, powered by mm-hmm. a company called Recurate. Mm-hmm. Recurate, right? Yeah. Um, Although that was weird. They're sort of making it a way to build their, their marketing list,
3: right? Oh, so users users cards, be, not cash? You don't get well, paid? <laughs> and the, the users have to be a Coors VIP member, whatever that right. is. That means you have to have already spent a lot of money with them. You can't just, like, have your one-off Michael Kors jacket or whatever. Yeah, and you have to create a Michael Coors pre-loved account to sell with them. I don't know. It just seemed a little bit um, too much of a way to just sort of expand the VIP club rather than actually mm. circulate mm. a lot of a lot of product. The
0: thing that's really cool about a peer-to-peer model, the, the kind of one of the things that's different than a typical eBay, Depop experience, is that they're able. You're able to use the um, kind of stock imagery of the product that you bought and you're trying to resell, and and the descriptions. So yeah. the thing that's frustrating huh. about when you're trying to resell something you don't want to take the photo, write the description, blah, 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 do this and the other thing. It's already pre-populated for you because you're just reselling something the brand already knows you have. So you add in a few updates based on, you know, your wear and tear of that garment. Um, So I think it's it's actually a really interesting model.
3: Luxury brands are not going to go for it. They're going to need to control that. My daughter orders from Depop and it's hilarious and it doesn't bother her in the least, but the way those packages come from Depop that are just in, they're completely random. You know, you can just see oh, yeah. some, some teenager grabbed whatever envelope, you know, newspaper. You got clothes wrapped in newspaper. You know, it's not. And
2: sometimes it's, it's, <laughs> it's really thoughtful. So it's actually yeah, there's kind true. of an element if you're into it. If you can get into it, it's kind of fun. It feel you feel like a, co- a connection with a person you bought it from. I think what's interesting about peer to peer though, and I I think you hit the nail on the head, Shilla, is. It's a different experience. It's likely not gonna to translate to luxury, but it is more cost effective than taking something back and repairing it and cleaning it and then fulfilling it again. So it does allow access to lower price points into resale. Like it's a lower lift. The other
0: dynamic that I think will be interesting to see how it plays out is that you're competing with again the big players, eBay, Depop, Poshmark, ThreadUp in in a slightly different way because on the seller side, you're hoping that um, if I have a Michael Kors item that I want to sell, I'm going to sell it through the Michael Kors re-commerce experience and not by up- uploading it to Depop. So you're competing with those platforms in that, in that sense. You know, it seems pretty
3: powerful. I For, for Michael Kors in particular, because they've had, um, over the years, they they had a lot of overproduction issues. They they issued secondary lines, the MK Michael Kors things like that. And what happened is is a number of the luxury resale platforms got very suspicious and stingy and really didn't want to take a lot of Michael Kors. This happened to me several years ago. I had a Michael Kors item that I know was Michael Kors because I bought it at Michael Kors. And um, when I went to sell it at Real Real, they t- they came back and said, no, that's it's we didn't pass our. Our sniff test, it's not really Michael Kors. And I know that was because they were so suspicious. I understand that. But for a brand like Michael Kors that wants to do resale, they've seen that's a problem for them. There's so much out there that is, is suspicious. So I think that would give customers confidence if they're buying it used but from the brand. They know they're they're not getting the knockoff. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, So Selfridges has announced that they want half of their transactions to be resale or repair or rental or refills by 2030. Half. That blew me away. And partly because I've done, I've written a lot, I've thought a lot about department stores Mm. historically they had such a big role in our lives particularly in america also in the uk they used to be where you went to buy everything you could go to one store and and furnish your house and dress yourself and buy your school supplies etc um they have really fallen out of favor my gen z kids have barely set foot in department stores and don't know what to do when they get there amazing
0: this is exactly the type of announcement that we're looking for because fundamentally what we need from um retailers and from apparel brands is a fundamental rethink of the model. That's the only way we're really going to make progress. And I think the thing that was so interesting and exciting about this announcement is that they're acknowledging that and they're saying, we're working on changing our model. It's not that we're going to, um, not pursue revenue growth, but we're going to pursue it in a completely different way. And by um,
2: making a such a short term commitment, like 2030, rather than a 2040 or 2050, that right. holds them more
0: accountable. Like yeah. we'll
3: remember this headline.
0: Absolutely. Yeah, Hopefully.
3: that's 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 eight years away, seven yeah. and a half, whatever. Um, it's a you know half of the transactions. That means that Selfridge is going to play a really different role in the lives of its customers in seven years than it does now. I love anything that sounds like it would be convenient. If I can go in and get my, my blusher refilled or or my night cream and also drop off some clothes that I want to resell. And I've got some that I need to be repaired. Oh my God. Yeah. Amazing. Well, they see see
2: the revenue opportunity, too. I think it it was mentioned in this uh, story in The Guardian that they've seen a 240% increase in resale transactions in the last few years. And they do sell higher-end goods, so they're well-fit for this market. It's part of their Project Earth plan um, that's been in process for two years. It's been one of those pilot programs that we all like to sort of make fun of because fashion brands launch a pilot and then you never hear about it again. (laughs) But these transactions are still less than 1% of their total transactions. So they've got a long way to go and i love this bold commitment
0: i agree this is the model i think this is the model for i, I don't want to say perfect because nothing is perfect but like a you know um a, a really terrific um, direction mm-hmm. for a retailer or apparel brand and i think this is this is honestly the future yep. everybody is going to have to grapple with this type of core model evolution or else they're going to be f- they're going to ultimately be forced to from, by policy. They're going to
3: be obsolete. Our first guest for Secondhand September is Andy Rubin, founder of Trove, which we've talked about here as a platform powering brands resale programs. Welcome Andy.
1: Thank you for having me.
3: We're glad to. Secondhand September. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes, we are into it. I had never actually heard of it until September, but I'm glad I know about it now. Um, I want to give a little bit of background on Andy. This is not. This is this is an interesting background. Andy ran operations from Walmart's global food and consumables business, and he led the retailer's e-commerce strategy and the private brand and omnichannel in- initiatives. How that leads you into what you do now, I'll be curious to hear. I think we're going to get into that. Uh, you were Walmart's first and founding chief sustainability officer. Um, You help brands now with Trove buy back and resell their wares in their own packaging. So this sounds like infrastructure, Um, um, not kind of what a lot of consumers think of as resale, which is going on eBay or Craigslist. I think if I've got it right, Trove is powering REI, Patagonia, Levi's, Eileen Fisher, um, all these resale platforms, um, we've talked about a lot of these in the past, that it's intriguing they're going into it. Um, Shilla, you want to take it from here?
0: Andy, it's such a treat to have you on, um, especially because you've been such a wonderful friend and mentor to me and to Thrilling. Um, so uh, really fun for all of us uh, to get to chat with you. Um, so for folks who may not be familiar, um, can you just share what, what does Trove do and how does it fit in the resale space.
1: Yeah, I mean, stepping back a second, there is a massive consumer shift that we talk about, Sheila, all the time. That is, it is happening. We are realizing and we've got more technology. There is less distinction between new and used. And so there's a shift going on where if I can find um, a nicer product or something for more value, I'm going to do it. And so the shift is that increasingly we are seeking out and finding previously owned and worn items, right, secondhand. Um, historically, that's happened on these third-party platforms. Increasingly, brands, you know, brands have made, the Patagonia's made the original NanoPuff. Why wouldn't they get the revenue for the second, third, and fourth sale? They've made a beautiful item. And so what Trove does is enable those companies to buy back and resell, right, for Patagonia to make money the first, as well as the second, third, and fourth time they sell that item. So we provide the logistics and the technology that make that doable.
3: You know what, and you just said that to me, I thought, you gotta, you gotta do this for the art market. That's like a oh huge problem for artists. Right.
1: Well, a place, a place that we will go that, um, you know I mean, art or sports memorabilia, yeah. we're working toward and I think we will get to is where the creator, the original artist, the person who produced something with intentionality continues to monetize what they've done over time. Yeah. Now, of course, like items that are more born digital and the ability to do that is coming. It's not here yet. But as that happens, it's going to create whole new um whole new economic models right specifically for brands and retailers that don't exist right now.
2: It's kind of unimaginable but also really exciting to think about sort of the um how the reveren- revenue opportunity will finally enable resale when when that does happen. And as we know, it'll start with higher value goods, but it's coming. I, I agree.
1: What I'd say right now is it's inevitable. Yeah. I, I mentioned that I'm sitting. I'm sitting outside at a you know at the Gen Z conference, and anyone who does not believe that this is um, inevitable, talk to talk to someone between 18 and 25 or 18 and 34 years old, and it is a preferred way to shop because who wouldn't want the Tom Ford shirt, right, for the price that you could buy a mass market shirt now? Right. Anybody. Right. So it's just the ability to do that. And the question that that we will face is when you have produced this shirt, when you're Tom Ford, are you going to partake in that market or are you going to let that happen outside your brand? And of course, the brands are going to participate in that.
3: Can I nerd out for a second, though? I, I'm just trying to grasp how does your back of house work? So you find the products for REI or
1: Patagonia, like, the beauty of brands, and we can talk about kind of shifts and evolution of, of the market, mm-hmm. but brands, here's one of, this is one of the reasons brands are so central in the change we're talking about, is because take Arcteryx as one of the brands that we work with. When Arcteryx says, Andy, we, we know you. You bought an Arcteryx Sierra something outdoor piece four to five years ago. We know that. If you are given the data that we have, if you're ready to hand that back, bring it back to a store, send it back to us, drop it off at a drop-off point we will hand you money for that item. It's an item that we made to last. So if you're not wearing it, hand it back. So the brands will do the outreach because they are keeping customers engaged in their brand. When the customer shows up at an Arc'teryx, at a Lululemon, at a Lululemon with 10 Lululemon pieces over the last 10 years, it's Trove's technology that allows Lululemon to say, we can identify each of those, price them, and hand you a gift card a minute and a half for 10 items. You can shop for what you need now in those 10 items, then come through Trove operations and technology. Each one might take its own path so that we can list any of those items that would be resellable to a potential Lululemon customer who might've always loved the brand, but never been able to access it on lululemon.com, right? So then we make that listable and we help merchandise it. So if you really want to geek out you look at Lululemon, um, You look at a picture of a single Lululemon piece, there might be a hundred Lululemon behind that piece, or there Mm. might be two. Yeah. Because the Trove technology allows that item to be merchandised in a way that makes sense for all of us as shoppers, where the existing infrastructure and worlds built around parent and child SKUs. That is not the way that this one-of-one world operates. Every single item is a unique item because every item has its own condition. And so we make that possible. We make that mapping work so that brands can graph this on, if you will, to their existing commerce engines.
3: So, th- but they have the products. Like the customer has sent that Arcteryx jacket back to them. They photographed it. They've done all that. The brand has.
1: The brand does all and that work it. today. Okay. But I mean, the customer could do the work too. If that is a program attribute that can change.
3: Oh, interesting. But the point okay. is
1: that um, you are, we all have, Um, eight to nine, on average in the U.S., eight to nine years of stuff in our closets. And if you think individually as a listener about your own closet, those are not items that all need to be repaired. They're just items you're not wearing. And so when it gets easy enough to hand those items back for money, of course you'll do that. So before I go to an REI, I look at my closet and say, boy, is anyone still using this tent? Why don't I bring it in? Because I'll get a gift card for it. So as brands make it easy, they are inviting me as a member to come back in and to have a new behavior where I can hand items back because REI sells outdoor gear that lasts. Bring it back. And then what it allows REI to do is get the most amount of value for that by reselling it to someone who might not have been able to afford a big Agnes tent. But now they can because that big Agnes tent has already had 30 nights out in the world, right? it has done all these things, and now someone else can enjoy it. Because right now that tent is just sitting in a closet getting old.
2: I want to ask about your uh, big news. Um, I think it was last week or, or the week before um, it was announced that you are now powering On Running's uh, resale site. And this is really exciting to me because I think of the footwear market as something that is... I know. I know you've also um, you're supporting all birds, which I thought was really exciting too. Are those the the two footwear companies you're you're supporting?
1: REI has a significant size of yeah. footwear in their assortment.
2: Okay, so I, I'll come back to that because um, well, on running first of all, it, it was a brand that I hadn't really heard of, and apparently it's worth over a billion dollars. And it's yeah, I
1: think they're. I think they're. I think they just shared. I think they just shared their 1.1 billion in sales. Wow. Yeah.
2: Yes. So it's, it's, it's a Swiss company, I believe it's backed by Roger Federer. Um, It has really, really deep sort of um, uh, sustainability goals and initiatives already happening. It's sort of an issue right now. I I want a pair. I think Christina's mentioned she wants a pair. So uh, maybe we're going to have to go onto your resale site and buy one. Um, But I'm, I'm, I'm really excited about the footwear market in particular because it's such a different market than apparel. And I think it's relatively untapped and uh, it, especially interests me in terms of sneakers are very hard to recycle. I think it's going to take a long time for us to get there in terms of, you know, taking apart footwear, recycling those challenging, normally poly-based components. Um, The best case for footwear is really reuse, Um, even more so than apparel. That's absolutely right. Yeah. So tell me more about that, that partnership and how you view the footwear, footwear resale space and how it differs than apparel. I'd love to hear more.
1: There's so many things that make footwear unique. The one you just mentioned that, you know, when we look at climate, when we look at anything for sustainability, the biggest thing we can do across these products is get more use out of the things we've made. I mean, not even, not even close. Arguably in the next eight years, the only one that comes close is I wish brands would fix their care labels to say wash only in cold water. But basically, wash in cold water and get more use out of it. Mm -hmm. And footwear Mm -hmm. is a massive opportunity because so many items get returned that people bought, and it's called an open box problem. Yep. But they might walk around the block. And then, when whomever, all birds are on running, gets back those sneakers, they can't resell them new anymore. Yet, someone's basically walked around the block. And they're incredible, they have been made with intentionality. They're brilliant. They're. They're brilliant. So get them on someone's feet. How many miles have they run and how many miles can they run? I love that. So it is, and On Running is a company. Um, I became familiar as a customer, I believe, uh, maybe four or five years ago. The more that I learn about how the company, the company's founding and the company's beliefs and values, the more that I appreciate the uh, getting to work with them. They are just, um, they they really are constantly driven to figure out better models
3: mm-hmm.
1: for how to do commerce. And I just, w- we need that.
3: Can you give us an example? Yeah, they've
1: had a, they've had a, uh, they've had a footwear rental program for some time. <laughs> um, they've been very clear about being transparent about their footprint from scope one, two, and three. They've got some inc- uh, very, uh, very um, aggressive climate goals. And they're not the goals where they say, Hey, it's an aggressive goal, but it's in 2050 where everyone goes, oh, no one even working at the company now will be around in 2050. Yeah. Their goals right. are for 2030, which I appreciate. They're just um they've, you know, they're they're like many companies we get to work with where they've really, they're very um, they're very authentic about what they're trying to do. It's not lip service.
0: Andy, I have um two questions for you on the kind of resale space in general. Um the first is um you're you're a pioneer. Um in this brand partnerships model. Um, and there's a lot of new startups entering the space. I think imitation is a sincerest form of flattery. Um, some, some of the brands, some of the startups are taking a peer-to-peer approach in serving their brand partners. And I'm curious your thoughts on that model.
1: Massive, massive step forward. And we all come to appreciate the brands that you shop with. When you're not happy with it, you return it. When you're done wearing it, you return it. Right, and So regardless of model, that is what is happening right now in mm-hmm. the world. That is positive. Mm-hmm. When you think about brands and what brands need to be successful, there are trade-offs of different models. The advantage of a model like peer-to-peer is it's very easy to get started. Right, You can do it on a whiteboard, you launch it. There may be very few items out there. You might not have a lot of scale. Mm-hmm. There is brand risk when one customer sends to another customer there are challenges with how many new customers you can bring in. They're, they're all kind of trade-offs, but it is still in the space, the rental and resale space. So uh, I, I think that, I mean, any model that's doing that is great. I think that there are some significant scale challenges for brands that only do that model. And I think that there are some brand equity challenges for those brands. But, you know, time, time will tell. Overall, the tide is lifting a lot of boats awesome
0: yeah the other uh perspective i'm I'm curious to hear is you've it seems like trove has been very particular about the types of brands and companies you will partner with usually folks who've already had some sustainability in their dna we're seeing a lot of fast fashion companies enter the resale re-commerce space pretty little things boohoo had some recent announcements in that regard um, curious your point of view about fast fashion entering re-commerce, and would Trove ever consider partnering with the fast fashion brand? That's a great question, Chila. Yeah, that That's a great question.
1: <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's some. Yeah, I would never say never because uh-huh. overall, what I care more about, about than like would we partner with the fast fashion or not is I care about what the what the effort and the actions do for the future that we all share. Would you also
2: say that uh, you know? Because obviously, we probably all have feelings about fast fashion, but. They, help, they would help scale infrastructure.
1: Yes, I think the biggest challenge with fast fashion is not the one of like, are they good or bad? The challenge is when you buy, from Pretty Little Things, when you buy an $8 piece new, what is the market for that piece after I bought it? And more so than, I mean, we, we look for brand alignment on sustainability with everybody we work with, but we, look, we also look at the type of items that they sell. And m- more so than durability right now, I mean, durability of course matters. Mm-hmm. What really matters is their demand for the item that someone made after the first owner. Right. And if there's not demand for the item, it's not, we're not going to make, Trove isn't going to make money, the brand's not going to make money, why are we going to do it? Mm-hmm. We are after a scalable change that brands will do that will, will ultimately either allow them to shift the supply of items from new supply chains to used right, and and grow in a different way. Or to keep growing, it's take market share from players that produce lesser quality items. Mm -hmm. Either way, we are talking about a model in the world where we get more nights per tent, we get more ski trips per jacket. I love the idea of more engineers being inspired per Lego set. Mm -hmm. Like we spend so much time making these items, let's get every ounce of reason they were made out of them. And we just like, we're on average in the U.S. right now, we wear a piece three times. We make it, we ship it all over the world, we wear it three times, and it sits in our closet. That's horrifying. Let's get more use out of it. Yeah, and I mean, the, the way to address it, because brands are going to grow, help, help brands, um, which is our focus, to be able to have these scalable models where they can have more new customers, make more money, have, a higher, um, have higher brand equity and more loyalty. And they will just clobber their competitors. And that's awesome. Mm-hmm. We all win. So it sounds
3: like your system really works better with well-made
1: objects. Yeah. Desirability, price point, Yeah, it, it tends to um, correlate with price point. If the item is, is going to sell typically right now over 35 to $40, if it's less than 35 or $40 used, it's going to be a challenge right now okay. for the model that we're really doing yep. the amount of bespoke work that we are to uphold the brand. That changes, though. That number would have been 50 to $60 two years ago. As the technology improves, that number will continue to come down.
3: Well, what about what about the luxury industry? Are you talking with Chanel and LVMH and Caring? I mean, it's, you yes, seem ideal yes, there. Yes,
1: yes, and yes. Okay. Well, I mean, talk about the desirability of being able to afford those brands. Those brands do something magical with the items they produce. Don't I mean, I, you get the full value out of of what those are and don't just create the desirability use it to use it to build the brand yeah right those brands are incredible for looking at every nook and cranny of the brand and protecting it yet they seem to be perfectly fine with and I don't think they are but you would think with marketplaces you know where I can get a pair of Celine glasses sent to me in an an orange Hermes box that's got to be horrifying for both Celine and Hermes Mm-hmm. And if you think about new customers, a majority of new luxury customers are meeting that luxury brand for the first time on a secondhand platform.
0: I know we're out of time, Andy. Um, if you could wave your hand and tomorrow one policy measure would come to life that would mo- be most be most impactful in the space, which one would you want it to be?
1: Yeah, I would want to see something with... Um, I think the scale ability that brands have to create change, it would be something around producer Mm -hmm. responsibility for the things that they put in the world. And then what I'd want to do is make sure that that legislation accounted for the models that would get more life and do things with these items. It wouldn't be an across the board. So it'd have to have a nuance that would drive the innovation and the competitiveness in the market to to always have, to always be driving for better alternatives to get more use out of an item and figure out what happens after end of life. But really, the, the big step right now is get more use out of him, and we need scale ways and incentives to do that. A carbon tax would do something similar, Right, there are a lot of ways at this.
3: Thanks for joining us. When you're about to sign Chanel, please get in touch with me. Oh, my
1: gosh. To be continued.
3: Thanks so much, Andy. Thanks, <laughs> Andy. Thank we'll you care. all. Well, that was really cool. He's amazing. He's amazing. Awesome. So good to see Andy
2: joining us on a patio from
0: yeah. out in New York City.
3: Yeah, he did that on an incredibly short notice, and I'm really glad he did. And we obviously have to have him back for more.
0: He really is a true pioneer. He has the battle scars to prove it. He's been in the space a really long time, and anybody that has in
2: Chile can attest to this. It's It's a very tough industry, and to remain optimistic and positive and in the future... In what isn't, hasn't even happened yet, and excited about that, I think that is the spirit you have to you have to have to be a leader in in the resale space
3: in apparel, at least. That's true. I'm in New York this week, as we said earlier, um, at New York Fashion Week. So I'm looking at nothing but new clothes, 80% of which will not be produced. So I um, I'm seeing a lot of clothes that are just samples on on runways. And it's nice to think, God, maybe Trove could sell those too.
0: Yeah, or Sheila. Hey, you know what? We're open for business. <laughs> <laughs>
3: That's all for the show. Please support us by following us on Twitter. We're at Hot Buttons Pod. Or send a link to friends or colleagues and go to Apple or Spotify and give us a rating. We're also streaming on Amazon Music and we really appreciate your support. If you want to email us with story ideas, send a note to hotbuttons at postscriptaudio.com. We also want to tell you about our new call-in line. We want to hear from you, what you'd like us to talk about, subjects you think we're missing, sustainable fashion, shopping, advice, rants, praise, whatever you'd like to share. We'd love to hear it all. Leave us a voicemail at 508-622-5361, and maybe we'll feature it on an upcoming episode of the show. And by the way, if you hear something funky, it's a Google voice number. So just wait. You're not going to hear a beep. Go ahead, leave the message, and, um, and we are excited to listen to it from you. Hot Buttons is hosted by me, Christina Binkley, Shilla Kim Parker, and Rachel Kibbe. The show is produced by Postscript Media. Our senior editor is Ann Bailey. Our engineers are Greg Vilfrank and Sean Marquand. Cecily Meza Martinez is our managing producer. Stephen Lacey, Scott Clavenna, and Rachel Kibbe are our executive producers. Postscript Media makes podcasts at the intersection of climate with culture, politics, business, and tech. Postscript Media is supported by Prelude Ventures. Prelude is a venture capital firm focused on climate solutions across energy, food, agriculture, transportation, logistics, and advanced materials. Thanks for joining us. We will catch up with you next week. I just thought wedding dress rental was interesting. <laughs> My H&M wedding dress. Well, yeah. J. Crew did it a long time ago, right? Yeah. They did. That. I mean, that's like, we need affordable wedding gowns out right. there. We do. I think it's a great idea.